Okay. Question one. Have a quiz review. Question one. What is the term that means in flesh and denotes the act whereby the eternal Son of God took to himself an additional nature of humanity through the virgin birth? It's on page 235. It's a quote. What are we talking about? Incarnation. Incarnation. And um, if you know Spanish, the word carne means what? Means meat or flesh. So there's your, there's your little hint. Incarnation means the infleshing or bringing into flesh. I think carne might be flesh in Latin, maybe. That's where it comes from. Um, true or false, Mary was a virgin but became pregnant prior to the time when she and Joseph lived together and remained a virgin until after the birth of Christ. That is true. That is true. She was a virgin, but she's pregnant prior to the time when she and Joseph were living together as husband and wife. Um, the, the, I basically took it from the, did anybody say false for that or have a reason? The only potential thing after I wrote this up, I thought about the fact that they did go to Bethlehem. Um, so they were together, but I was saying live together as in married. So as long as everybody said true, you're good to go. If anybody said false, you can explain why you said false. I probably could give it to you. True or false, because Jesus was fully human, he should not be considered fully God. I didn't read the question, but it's false. Yeah, that's correct. No, you didn't read the question? Okay. Sorry, you, yeah, I gave you, didn't give you a lot of time there. What is the term that may be defined as, quote, the second person, the pre-incarnate Christ, came and took to himself a human nature that remains forever, undiminished deity and true humanity, united in one person forever? Is that not like a two-word definition for that? Do we have to have, like... Term, so. It's a well, term. I mean, like, is there a definition for that that isn't so long? No, every part of that is important. Okay. So the second person, the pre-incarnate Christ, came and took to himself a human nature and remains... The, the, the key part is here, he remains forever undiminished deity. So this is a doctrinal term called the hypostatic union. Did anybody get that right? Abby did. Abby did? No, I think I... Hypostolic, but hypostolic. No, she's hypostatic. Did <laughs> anybody else have was close? What'd you say? Hypostatic. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it was layman's term. God man. It was in the book. Oh man. And I knew that you. I, I just couldn't remember the term, but it is God man. I'll give you half a point for that. I give you half a point. Right. Thank you. But there's a reason we don't use that term. It's because. Um, there is, and we'll talk about it, all, all of the doctrinal heresies involving Christology, most of them revolve around this issue. They either believe that he was God and not man, or man and not God. Okay. And the hypostatic union speaks to the fact that he is both. And this is why this term is important, Hudson. If you look at the term... It says, the pre-incarnate Christ came and took to himself a human nature. So he exists, he's pre-existent, he comes in human flesh, he does not begin at birth in Bethlehem, and he remains forever undiminished deity. That's a very key idea, that he's not diminished because he takes on humanity. He's not less God than he was before. It's not like, well, Jesus, before he took on flesh was like really God, but now because he's got human, he's like humanity, taking on humanity, human form, as it says in Philippians, then he's not really like God anymore. No, no, he is still undiminished deity and true humanity. 
and it's in one person forever. So that's that that term. I really I was hoping you get that, but it, I I will take that. But that's um, uh, half a point, not a full point. Short answer. Uh, or I had a teacher in school. Get this. If you get something wrong and if you argued for your reason why, but you didn't convince him, he would say, well, why don't you just put a little X? <laughs> Make you feel better. Yeah, just put a little X. So we, I was like, well, how does that help? <laughs> it doesn't help me. The other thing, if you'll notice, whenever I pray for you guys at the beginning of the class, I normally say that I ask God to give you guys um, re- recall as you take your quiz, because I had a teacher one time who would pray and say, help these students not to get any more points than they deserve for the amount of time they studied. I am not kidding. And so I have forever, like, never, I'm never praying that prayer. I'm praying for mercy. <laughs> How is the worship of Jesus Christ evidence, in his, uh, evidence of his deity? What are some of your answers? The base, let me give you the basic gist. The basic gist is that he was worshipped. He did not deny the worship or he did not stop the worship. He received worship. Therefore, he is accepting of being worshipped as God. And if he did that and he was not God, that would be evidence. That he, but because he received it, it was evidence that he is indeed God. So Thomas, my Lord, my God, people fall down and worship him. Even I was mentioning Philippians 2, which is the kenosis passage. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Worship. That could be, you could say something about that. Is, is that the general gist of what people had, or does some, somebody have something different you want to ask about? I see a lot of answers. I kind of is correct. No, no. I'll look up. Yeah. If you have a question, just put a question mark. I can read it. Okay. All right, pass them in. Pass them in. Okay. No, I mean, like, it's impressive that you know, I just read the chapter. Well, I Thank you. Good, good, good. We have to know protoevangelism. I told you for the <laughs> protoevangelion. Uh, is it protoevangelion? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Can we get extra credit if we figure out how to work that into every quiz? <laughs> 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 Did you use the word protoevangelium in your... I did not, but just for the future. I'm not going to give you short answer on every quiz. Good. So... Oh, hi, Charles. How are you? Come on in. Um, well, you just don't get to count the quiz if that's the case. All right, turn to uh, 2.3.5. Talking about his presentation. I think it's on page 14 or so. 2.3. We're going to finish this up really really quickly and get moving because we're a little behind. Our goal today, um, and I'm sorry for goofing off at the beginning, I apologize. Um, Today's the 28th. Our goal is to get through the dehypostatic union. So if we get there, great. If not, um, we'll catch up later. Um, Christ in his presentation, again, we're in this section talking about, I believe this is talking about Old Testament prophecies of Christ. Talks, uh, the Old Testament uh, prophesies his presentation as a son of God. Notice the word Hosanna, Hosanna. Um, that is actually a Hebrew request to um, save us. Save us, please. Hosanna means save us, please. And um, son of David, calling Christ the son of David. Did you find it yet? Are you looking for it? Two point. Do you, do you all have those numbers? You should have those numbers, right? Yeah, I thought okay. you said 3.1. 2.3.5. Did I say the wrong number? Sorry. You might not. 2.3.5. So the presentation of Christ. 
So he is a son of David. Um, That is a a messianic title. So son of David is someone who sits on the throne of David. That is Messiah. Comes in the name of the Lord. He comes as an emissary of or for the sake of Yahweh, which is the Lord. Okay. He was presented next. 2.3.6 is his rejection. That's a blank. His rejection. One of the strange ironies of Messiah is difficult to see in the Old Testament was that Messiah would both be accepted and rejected. So he is accepted by the people in this entrance. He's shortly rejected in the same city. It's kind of interesting. If you're looking at it in the Old Testament, it's hard to understand how that would work. But from our perspective, seeing the story of Christ uh, play out, we see it very clearly. Um, We see this in the stone the builder is rejected, has become the chief cornerstone, Psalm 118.22. And that's quoted in Matthew 21. Um, So also the people uh, give him lip service, not genuine obedience, and Christ would be forsaken by his friends. Uh, We see this also in what's called types of Christ, the types of Christ. Um, A type is an imprint, uh, like we use the word today, refer to movable type. Or uh, if you have a typewriter, a typewriter uses slugs. There are these little little hammers that have the letter on it, and it hits hits the ink, and the ink then hits all the paper. And that imprint is created in the paper. Uh, so we have in the Old Testament types of Christ. Can anybody give me an example of what that would look like? Any, any people who would be types of Christ? Well, one, I'll, I'll start. Like, um, Joseph is, is considered by many to be a type of Christ. If you look at some of the, the patterns that happened with his life, where he was betrayed by his brothers, right? He is sold for money. And then he is... Uh, from the depths he is brought up, you know, kind of like from death to life in a sense. There's a lot of parallels, not super explicit, but there are these types, these kind of beats, these story beats, if you want to think of them that way, that kind of hit on these different people in the Bible, like David and, and, um, and, and, and Joseph's another example of that, and, and others. So <laughs> you'll hear people talk about um, uh, type of Christ. That's what they're referring to. They don't mean he's a kind of Christ or that he's... Um, I mean that he's an imprint that Jesus is similar to. Or he, um, prophecies concerning Christ's death. Uh, if you look at the, it's a painful death. A painful death. Psalm twenty-two. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama which is literally what it says in the Hebrew, just in English letters. Um, we see that in Psalm twenty-two. That's the 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 the, the chapter that's most talking about the painful death of Christ, um, piercing the hands and feet. None of his bones broken. His prayer. Dividing the garments uh, from my clothing, they cast lots, etc. It's also uh, the next section of violent death. So it is painful and violent. Isaiah 52 and 53. Sufferings of Christ is violent. He would not die peacefully. And um, see this, uh, his visage was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. And Jesus being scourged um, shows his, his abuse there. Um, Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Also, we see um, uh, the prophecies concerning Christ's victory, his resurrection. Psalm 16, I covered this on Sunday in, our, in a message. Um, David prophesies, you will not leave my soul in Sheol or the grave, nor will, you, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption or decay. So the picture there of Christ not being in the grave long enough to decay. He was in the grave three days um, before decay sets in. Therefore, uh, that fulfilling that prophecy. In fact, that's what it says in Acts 2.24 when he quotes that. Um, 
he shall see, um, is it, is it, next, is it, I think it's in Psalm 16 where he shall see his end. Is that Psalm, um, no, he shall prolong his days. Is that, I forget. There's, a, there's another one that talks about the, uh, maybe it's Isaiah, uh, the, the, the death of him, and then it says he will prolong his days. The idea of him, yeah, it's in Isaiah. I think it's 153 or 56. Oh, look at that. I, I guess I should look this up. I really should know this. One second. Um, you marking me off? No, he said he forgot to create my test. I'll, I'll look at it. Yeah, Isaiah 53, 10. He had, he had pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, and then the next line is, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. The idea that even though he's an offering for sin, he dies, he will yet prolong his days. This picture of resurrection coming. So, um, His ascension uh, is also prophesied there in Psalm 68, and that's quoted in Ephesians 4. Prophecies concerning Christ's reign, Psalm 2. Uh, very familiar uh, psalm. Uh, why do the nations rage and plot? Of, uh, why do the kings of the earth plot a vain thing? Um, they uh, they they are rebelling against the Lord and against His anointed. That's just that's a tremendous passage, and it talks about Jesus being installed or the Son of God being installed as the King, um, who the, the kings of the earth will have to pay obeisance to. Um, these are still coming. Psalm twenty four seven through ten. Victorious returning King. Who is this king of glory, this uh, Lord strong and mighty? Isaiah 9, 6, Christ the Son, his governmental reign. Government will be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 11 talks about uh, being of the seed of David, the root of seed of David. Christ reign in justice, peaceful world, the ruler over restored Israel. Isaiah 24, Christ reign in Jerusalem. Isaiah 35, blessing to the restored land. Isaiah Daniel 7. Uh, Christ's reign over all people in Zechariah 14, the destruction of Israel's enemies and Christ's rule over all nations of the world. So you have still that to be uh, prophetically fulfilled. That's 2.6. We're not going to cover that in length, but you can look at that at another time. Any questions about prophecies about Christ uh, in the Old Testament seen in the New Testament? Okay, if anything comes up, please, uh, I know I'm, I'm just talking, so raise your hand and we will move through it. Look, let's look at number three, the incarnation. You have your uh, handouts for the incarnation? Um, the incarnation is, uh, I had handouts, Charles, I don't know if you saw new handouts there. Okay, good. Incarnation means in flesh. We talked about this on the quiz. It means in flesh. And uh, this is the act whereby the Son of, of uh, the Eternal Son of God took to Himself an additional nature of humanity through the virgin birth. So, <laughs> in the incarnation, this is the meaning of it: Christ is forever unblemished deity, but is also true sinless humanity. He is taking on. There's your blank of human flesh. So, taking on human flesh. Um, some verses that refer to the incarnation. Uh, the, empty, uh, the next is the emptying of himself of certain rights. So when Christ empties himself, kanao, when he kenosis and kanao, um, he is emptying himself of the right. And we'll talk about that when we get to Philippians 2 and we'll open our Bibles and kind of 
walk through what that's saying so you have a clear word. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn to, turn to these verses so you can see them in their context. John 1.1 1, 1, uh, begins with these uh, powerful words. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What do you see just by that, those verses? What, do you, what doctrines do you see clearly laid out? Okay, when's this happening? In the beginning. So we're talking before time began. This is, should make you immediately think of Genesis 1-1 because it, it, was, it was written to reflect Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, but rather is saying God created, he says, was the word. Now in our Greek class I'm teaching on Thursdays, we learned that the word was is called an infinitive, and it's the word hain, which means... Um, it's a continuous movement in the past, continuous action in the past, meaning that it was not like in the in, that God was uh, in the beginning was the word, like the word at one time existed, so that the word was existing in the past. You could even translate this: in the beginning, the word was existing. Okay, in the beginning was the word. Okay, the second phrase, and the word was with God. What is this? Let me write the last part up too. And the Word was God. Okay, so this is eternality of Christ here. In the beginning was the Word. We know later that the Word is a title for Christ. It's the, it's the Greek word logos. Okay? And it's, it's no mistaking that, that God, when He creates the world, how does He create the world in Genesis 1? What does He do? He speaks. And Jesus is the Word. And the word was what? Now, what is that? In, what, what kind of doctrine does that indicate? What is, what is that teaching us? Okay. Before we get all the way to the Trinity, we should say that the Son or the Word is distinct. Okay. To be with something, you have to be distinct from it in some sense. Yet. The Word was God. So He is both distinct and the same. And so in some ways He's distinct, in some ways He's the same. And that's why we talk about personhood, the person of God, or the person, uh, and we talk about, when we talk about the Trinity, we have different categories, the being of God, the person of the Son. We have these distinct terms because in some ways they are distinct, in some ways they are different. And this is the, the definitely teaching that. If you keep going, look at um, uh, John 1.14. How do we know that the Word refers to Christ? Someone might say, well, the Word is not Christ. So how do you know that? Well, look at John 1.14. Somebody want to read, read that for us? The Word what? Became flesh became flesh. Okay, so now the infleshing or the incarnation of the Word, He is no longer just in heaven. He is now infleshed and He is among us. And we beheld His glory. That's a very significant word. The glory as of... How is that glory defined? It's the glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. This is maybe one of the most misunderstood words in the Bible. Only begotten. Do we talk about this in this class? I don't know if we do. We should. 
Um, we're going to talk about now for a minute. Only begotten. Um, what, how, let me ask you this. Let's just start with just asking questions. When people usually use the word begotten, what do they mean? Because when I was a kid, I used to say, God sent his only forgotten son. <laughs> that is not the biblical way to say it, right? So what does, what does begotten typically mean? Child of. Say it again. Like child of. Child of. Okay, so to beget is to bear a child. And to be begotten, you are a child of. So he is the only begotten son. Okay, we call him that. And the question is, and this is where the Arian doctrine goes astray, is they believe that begotten refers to his coming into existence as it would typically in human terms. But the Greek word for this is monogenes. Okay. Now, this is not how you write it in Greek, but this is how you would write it in English, monogenes. Only, you see mono here, has to do with one, right? And this is the question. Genes is, uh, there's two possible, um, two possible sources for this word. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a form of a word that can either come from the word genao, which means to bear or beget. Or um, the word which means kind. I think it's just gnosko. I'm not exactly sure. I can't remember exactly which Greek word it is, to be honest now. The, the, the point is this, that this word either means only begotten or it could mean this, one of a kind. As in, you, as in unique. And most, most uh, Greek scholars today would hold that a better, well, you still can translate it only begotten, nothing wrong with translate it only begotten, but you'll notice that most pastors and most Greek scholars, most Greek, most Greek teachers or most theologians will describe this as his uniqueness, that he is, he is unique son of God. Um, and not that he, not that this is to indicate that he came into being at any point. Uh, the doctrine, that's a, that's a heretical doctrine called Arianism, and, and it's, as we, we deny that, the biblical truth teaches that Christ always, he existed in the beginning. He, he existed prior to anything else. He, he's always existed. So monogenes is an important, um, important word to know. You don't have to know that for the quiz or anything, but that is the only begotten. Um, and, and then, in fact, he's actually called, um, let me see, I think it's in... Um, let's see here. Oh, that's not going to show up there. I don't know if this is going to work. No, I don't have that. Let's keep going. Let's look at Philippians 2. Look at, go open your Bible, Philippians 2. Or you can look in your notes if it has, if you prefer that. Second thing I want to talk about with Christ's emptying or his incarnation with this verse here 
is this, this passage is very significant. Christ made himself of no reputation. So you have to understand that the context of these verses, Philippians 2, 7 through 8, is talking about the person of Jesus as an example for humility. Okay, let this mind, verse 5, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, and I probably should back up a little bit, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's Philippians 2, 6. What does that mean, being in the form of God? Um, so Philippi, let's talk about Philippians 2, 5 through 11. A couple things. Number one. Um, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. The word form is the word morphe, which has the idea of in every way. He is God. He is who being in every way. God double check my work here. Make sure I'm telling you the truth. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Okay, what does that mean? Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Have you ever, like, worked through that, what that means? I think, did you preach a message on this? Don't put me on the spot. Maybe. <laughs> what, what does that phrase mean? He wasn't taking away from God. Okay. So, being equal with God, did not count it. Not cons- Does anybody have a different translation of that phrase? I think some say, like, you do not consider it a thing to be crass. Okay, so when you rob, the word rob um, is, um, yeah, harpagamos, which means it has this idea of seizing or robbing something, but it also can mean gripping or grasping something. And the picture is, he did not consider equality with God something to hold on to or something to grasp. And, and there's an intentional parallel here with another person in the Bible who tried to grasp equality with God. Okay? Think humanity. Which person tried to grasp equality with God? How about Adam in the garden? By play, taking the fruit, he is promised what? You will be like God. And so he, he is reaching and, and disobeying God, and he is out stretching. Past. He is the, the first Adam and the last Adam. Okay, there's, there's a connection here. Whereas the first Adam tried to grasp equality with God. Christ, who is in every way God, does not even consider equality with God something to be held on to. But the next phrase says, but he emptied himself. He released his rights. Okay. So I don't want to give you the impression when it says robbery, I don't want to give you the impression that he was somehow that it was not his. Um, I like to use the word grasped. Uh, I think it's clear. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with not did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. That is made himself of no reputation. That's where we get our kanao, right? And it's, it's this idea of, of emptying himself of rights. 
that come with, I mean, the, the, the throne room of God, right? And he empties and he humbles himself. It's amazing to me how many stories there are in our literature that revolve around this concept of a prince or a king emptying himself of his rights of princeship and becoming a commoner in order to do something. Like, that's a very common, like, theme and motif. It comes from the, the, Christ, the Christ story, this idea of Christ emptying himself. So what is, how does he empty himself? What does he do? He comes in the likeness of men. Uh, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The picture is he starts in the throne room of God here. Quality with God, a thing to be grasped. And he empties himself to the point of man. Humbled himself to a bondservant or a slave. And then death even death on a cross. It's just a complete downward trajectory. His humiliation and his condescension is another important idea. Condescension. That Christ condescends to us because we cannot ascend to him. Okay, We cannot reach God, so he condescends to us. And then, if you can follow the rest of this passage... It says, wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. He goes straight from here to the exalted position. Okay. Um, the next uh, passage is first Timothy three sixteen, where he says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Manifest just means revealed. God was revealed in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up in the glory. So God manifest in the flesh. Okay. Any questions on that meaning of the incarnation? We'll get into explanation of it in a second here. Of course, there's... Um, I had a teacher, I'll say this. Um, I had a teacher who... Uh, who used to say truths like the Trinity and truths like the hypostatic union is like holding three watermelons. You really can only hold two at any time. Challenge accepted. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's how we used to describe it. And I always thought that's a funny picture in my mind. So I understand that some of the things we talk about here are, I think I might have mentioned this before, I may not have in my opening lecture, but this idea of superlogical ideas, superlogical concepts that... It is not illogical. It is, it is beyond our human capacity because we're dealing with concepts that are on God's level, in God's mind. And when we get, get to that level, sometimes there are things that are difficult to understand. And you cannot, if you, if you draw a um, syllogism out, you may not be using the right information. And you may come to bad um, arguments. And many times people make logical arguments they think are logical and they end up getting themselves in trouble. So let's walk through what the Bible says about the um, incarnation here. Uh, the genealogies <clears throat> both trace Jesus to whom? David, King David, right? Uh, so Matthew describes Jesus, Joseph's lineage because uh, Matthew's theme, uh, do you know the themes of the Gospels? Remember like a New Testament class or something? Matthew presents Jesus as what? Do you remember? Maybe this is new information. King, right? He is the king. Line of David, son of David, son of David, have mercy on us. He's a very Jewish 
constant Jewish uh, words, Rabboni, his master, right? Um, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is referencing, you know, it's, it's like Moses on the Mount, you know, speaking the law. It's what Jesus does, right? So there's this feeding the 5,000, like in the wilderness, feeding the five. Like it's a very Jewish, Jesus is king. What, what does Mark present Jesus as? Um, anybody know? Well, the, these are obviously not explicit. This is just what you do, when, like, generally agreed upon uh, themes. He presents Jesus as servant. Uh, so it's why Mark has no genealogy, right? Who cares where a servant's from? You don't, you don't care where a servant's from. That's just, what does he do? Mark is a gospel full of action. Uh, the word immediately appears more often in Mark than any other gospel. Immediately this, then immediately this. It's about Jesus' action. Jesus' teachings are shortened um, and, and summarized. They're not at length like they are in Matthew and Luke. Uh, Luke presents Jesus as... As man, right? We see him as the son of man. He is born of a virgin. He is human. He experiences tiredness. He experiences hunger. He, we, we follow Jesus. And this makes sense. I mean, Luke was a doctor, right? So we get a lot of medical kind of stuff. Jesus is very concerned with humanity. And then, of course, John, Jesus as God, right? We see the, the deity of Christ. Not that any of these do not teach the other. Of course, Luke teaches the deity of Christ. But these are the themes and their emphasis. So we get to um, here, the, the, the genealogies, both Matthew and Luke do the genealogies, but Matthew traces the genealogies through Joseph because line of David. Uh, um, Luke does through Mary to Adam, connecting Christ with the seed of the woman. Uh, the virgin birth was the means, there's your blank, the means by where the incarnation took place. We have Isaiah 7, 14, virgin shall conceive and bear a son, calls name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The virgin is Mary, according to Matthew 1, 23. The virgin birth is important because we find out that it is through man that sin continues. And so because of the virgin birth, Christ is not, um, is not born with Adam's sin. Matthew one twenty five emphasizes Mary remained, remained a virgin until she had Christ. She bore Christ. Um, that's important that there was actually a, a, a rumor going around that Jesus was a son of a Roman or a son of um, uh, uh, adultery. They, someone once accused Jesus. They said, at least we're not uh, children of adultery. And I think that's a, a jab at him. They believed he was a illegitimate child. They did not believe his stories of his mother. Luke one thirty four states Mary was not going to have contact with any man, but that the Spirit's birth would be due to the overshadowing, I'm sorry, Messiah's birth would be due to the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. So the virgin birth is important. That's what the genealogies and the virgin birth both speak to the explanation here of the incarnation. Any questions on what we're talking about with Christ becoming, taking on flesh in the incarnation? Does that make sense? I mean, it's difficult. It's not, it's straightforward, but it can be very challenging. Okay. One of the topics that's uh, not spoken about as much, I like to focus on a little bit, is humanity of Christ. Number four, when we speak about Christ's humanity, Jesus had to be a man if he was going to represent fallen humanity. 1 John 4, 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Um, Jesus had to be a real man. 
so he could suffer for the sins of men. But being a man did not mean he had any sin in him. Isn't this fascinating that, that, sin, that humankind are not, not by nature sinful in the sense that human flesh, the stuff of humanity is not by necessity corrupt. Sin has corrupted us. Yes, and Adam's sin has come to all men, but Christ is fully man. So there is, there, we, we, we look, we have, this is a very exalted humanity, or hu- human perspective on humanity, in other words. Um, and in fact, we see in 1 John 3, 5 as well, you know that he was manifested, that is revealed to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So Jesus was a sinless, or is a sinless man. Talk to me about, why would people, or what would people say if they deny the humanity of Christ? What, what, what angle would they take if you, did, if you were one who denied? This isn't as popular anymore. It was very popular early in the early church. It was called docetism. What, what, what do you, what do you can, can you just use your brain and kind of put yourself in someone else's shoes? Why would you deny the deity? Why would you deny the humanity of Christ? Hopefully you don't. <laughs> Help me out here. What do you think, Charles? Well, the Gnostics taught that um, Christ had to be just spiritual because the flesh and material materialism is evil. Okay, yes. So you have dualism. The Gnostic dualism, which was very popular, popular in the second century A.D. and following, and it's actually made a comeback in our culture today. Gnostic dualism it makes its way in people saying that, they are, um, that their body is they're different from their, they were born in the wrong body. That's a Gnostic dual idea, dualistic idea. So this is the idea that flesh is less valuable than spirit. It's actually a Platonic idea. You know who Plato is? Okay, Plato's concept of the world is that there is the perfect... So how do you... Let me give you a quick summary of Plato. How do you know that what you're sitting in is a chair? Well, Plato would say, well, there exists the perfect concept of a chair. And the chair in which you sit is a shadow or an example of the perfect chair. Somewhere out there exists the perfect chair... And in some respects, your chair fits that model. In others, it doesn't. Like maybe it's not as comfortable as it should be, or maybe it's too rigid, or maybe it's, it's uh, too big or too small or whatever. But it still it fits that model of the perfect chair. And so he believed in this perfect, this concept of the perfect identity of things or the spiritual identities of things. He believed in, in, in this perfection of the spirit versus the flesh being weak and unable to fulfill the perfections of the spirit. So things with human flesh in a Platonic world were less valuable than things of spirit. So guys who sat around all day and talked about ideas were more valued than people who worked with their hands because they're talking about spiritual things. And in some ways, our culture today still is very Platonic. We, we value sometimes ideas more than things. Um, or we might, we might speak in Platonic ways. So... He has this theory of the cave or this picture of a cave where there's uh, images of reality. It's, 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 he has an a, a interesting way of looking at the world. With that said, can you understand how somebody with that concept of reality who believes that 
that spiritual things are more valuable than physical world things have a hard time believing that the God of the universe would take on human flesh. Like, why would he do that? Why would he take on like, human flesh, stinky, smelly, sweaty human flesh that needs to sleep and eat and that has gas and that, you know, does human functions? Like, you can't be serious. Jesus, like the Son of God, no. He would never go there. He would never do that because he's God and God and is so much, so much more elevated, like spirit is more elevated than flesh. Do you understand the, the thinking behind that? Casey, he's looking, going to say something. No, I mean, I'm just processing. I, it's hard to imagine uh, someone as smart as Plato not believing that, that there's, you know, the is and the ought, that the ideal is talking about it gets you any closer to it. I mean, like faith without works right. is dead, right? So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So how, how does not doing something make you any better hmm. than doing something? I mean, both are required right. for any progress at all. Yeah. So that, that whole concept's kind of foreign. Yeah, it's, it, there is a, so there's the two main, we talked about this in one, one of my classes, Plato and Aristotle, I think it was the preaching class. The, Aristotle does the more of the um, inductive model of the world, thinking about from specifics to the universal, Plato from the universal to the specifics. So we don't want to get too much into that, but the concept being that you can understand how, so I just want you to be able to process and understand what I don't want you going away saying these people are stupid or how, how could someone think that? Um, you need to be able to understand like one of the signs of a mature thinker is being able to understand and articulate a thought without actually having to accept it. Like you need to be able to process what was going, like why they thought that without saying, oh yeah, well, I agree with that. No, no, it's, it's heresy. We're not, we're not, we're not going to like, I don't want you to agree with it. I just want you to be able to understand it because then you can defend your position better. Then you can understand the truth better. Um, so if all I did was, was tell you, they were, don't listen to them. If you're exposed to that without having any understanding, it could really, uh, I know people, they, they, they are never exposed to anything other than what they've always believed. And then they get exposed to something and they feel like they, they oh, I've never heard of this before. It must be, it must be correct. Um, other aspects of his humanity that he was born, he was, he was, he was a virgin born 4.2. We already talked about this a little bit, but notice in Matthew 1 and 2, it has at the end of the genealogies that it says, by whom Jesus was born. There's like a passive way of saying that by saying that, you know, he was born um, through, through Mary. There's this, it's not the same way that Joseph did not beget Jesus. He was, he was married to Mary who, by whom Jesus was born. He had a true body of flesh and blood. Have you thought about that? That the body Jesus had was like the body of other men except for those qualities which have resulted from human sin and failures. That is that Jesus had natural body. Okay? He grew up. In fact, 4.4, he had a normal development. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That is, he grew in four areas. Number one, mental. I think these are fill in the blank, right? Number two, physical. Number three, spiritual, in the sense religious, if you want to put it that way, and social, that's in favor with God and men. This is a growth. He is, this is actually a quote, in a sense, like a referencing Samuel. Samuel grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. Jesus grew, had a normal development. He also had a, new, had a human soul and spirit. We see this in, in John 12, when Jesus is troubled in his soul. My soul is troubled. 
What shall I say? My person is troubled, my inner being. He groaned in his spirit. Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who came with her weeping. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He was troubled in his spirit. He said, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He was troubled in his spirit. When he died, he gave up the spirit. Now, I, I personally hold to what's called a dichotomy versus a trichotomy. This is not something to divide churches over. I don't draw a huge distinction between souls and spirits. I typically think that there's, a, there's an immaterial part and the material part of man. Whatever. You can say it either way. I think that those terms are somewhat interchangeable. But the sense is that Jesus had, a, had his inner man. Okay. Also, he had the characteristics of a human being. 4.6, natural desires and needs. He fasted and became hungry. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. You would be too, right? So he became tired. He became tired and he stopped for rest. He was thirsty from a day's journey. The woman at the well, right? He had emotions. That is, he wept over his friends. The favorite memory verse of all junior hires, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept, right? Compassion, Matthew 9, he, he was filled with compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. Grief, grief. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to her. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The grief of that. He drew near, he saw the city, wept over it. Luke 19. He had grief in his heart for all this. He also had human names. He's called the son of David, Matthew 1. He's called Jesus. Jesus is the um, Greek form of Joshua. Um, this is important. It's um, So Jesus... In Greek, looks like this. Jesus. Uh, How's that, boys? Is that not bad? All right. It's Wait, like... Can you leave that up there for the quiz tomorrow? <laughs> for the quiz tomorrow. Um, in Hebrew, it's... Uh, Yah-shua, uh, like that. Or we say Joshua, right? It looks like this, in case you're wondering. Yah-shua, like that. Yahshua. Okay, so Jesus, Yeshua, it's the same, it's the same name, and it means Yah, Yahweh saves. God, Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. So that's why he says, his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall, remember this, Matthew? He shall what? He shall save his people from, his, from their sins. Whoa, you shall call his name Jesus, Yahweh saves, for he shall save. This baby is Yahweh, is God in the flesh, right? Very powerful stuff. Human name, son of God, Jesus, man, uh, and mediator. There is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Um, the deity of Christ, let's do this for like a minute and we'll be done. In the history of troops of the church, some groups have denied the humanity of Christ. Present day, it seems more groups are willing to deny the deity of Christ. It's especially true with liberal theology, rationalistic theology, rationalism. The Greek, I mean, the German, the German rationalists of the last couple centuries have uh, sh shot a shot an arrow through the heart of orthodoxy and neo-orthodoxy, all that garbage. Be careful what, who you read. Do not assume that the theologians you just pick up and read on the internet or books you pick up off the shelf, if they say that they're orthodox, they say that their biblical theology are good. There's a lot of bad stuff out there, and it's subtle, too. Some of it's very subtle. Be very careful. C.S. Lewis said, Christ is either a liar, lunatic, 
or Lord. I thought that's good. There's also uh, one other person that said he might uh, liar, lunatic, Lord, or legend was something I think Frank Turek threw out recently. Um, but we want to make sure that we understand that to affirm Christ as God is now, it's not simply to suggest he is God-like. Christ is absolutely equal with the Father as a person in work. Christ is undiminished deity. And this is important because what, what people, what the liberal theologians would say is that Christ um, was a human being who attained a kind of godhood by his sacrifice. Uh, that he attained this kind of godhood. And that we too can attain a kind of godhood if we just follow the steps of Christ. And so they, they twist the, picture, the Christ's sacrificial gift on the cross as a kind of meaningless, personal sacrifice of pain, suffering, willing to suffer. And we just need to follow in that step. And that way we become like God. And it's the lie in the garden all over again. So... Um, just let's do 5.2, we'll be done. Attacking Christ's deity is attack on the bedrock of Christianity. This is the heart of orthodoxy. If Christ were only a man, he could not have died to save the world. If he were only a man, he could not have died to save the world. He would have died for his own sins only. But because of his deity, his death has infinite value. Therefore, he can die for the whole world. Christ's deity is so important. Today it is denied. It used to be people saw Christ as a God figure who was not really a man. Docetism, he appeared to be a man, but he wasn't. They call him a ghost or whatever. Today, most people would say, well, yeah, we know Christ existed. We know we have historical documentation that he existed, but he wasn't really God. He's just a man who was made out to be like God. So the Bible teaches clearly that he is indeed uh, the Lord. So we'll talk about that next time. Man, I didn't get as far as I wanted to. Um... Reading for next time, uh, look at your, the earthly life of Christ, temptation of Christ, um, is your reading, 242, 253. Be working on your project. Um, i tell you what we'll do. Uh, would it help you if I did not have a quiz next week and instead just gave you a week to work on your project? Would that help? Okay. Maybe easier if you got rid of the one quiz. No, I'm not going to do that. Or you could get rid of the project. (laughs) Boy, that would really hurt your grade if I got rid of the project. I'm telling you. Made that a zero. I'm going to get rid of the quiz on 10-5. And I'm going to say work on... I'm going to still do the Unit 1 quiz on Christology. So we'll cover the material on 10-5 in the Unit 1 quiz. It's your only bad thing. But... um, Are we covering the stuff... For ten twelve in the unit one. We'll, we'll call it. We'll definitely cover it in class. Oh yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, so that we want to talk about it in class. Well, we'll talk about it in class, and it'll be. I will get through all of Christology soon. <laughs> I don't know when. <laughs> Thank you guys for uh, your good attention. And um, if you have any questions, feel free to email me. Some of you have. I appreciate that. But all right, that's all I got. See you next time. <laughs>